real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns, and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everyone. Nathan Rome is with you. And today we've got a very special guest in. We've got John Gogan from Stars Air Ambulance. Uh, and Stars, if people don't know what that stands for, is the Shock Trauma Air Rescue Service. And just a bit of background on John. He is from New Brunswick. He obtained a Bachelor of Kinesiology from the University of New Brunswick. During the summers while attending university, John worked for Eastern Canada's Waterways and Oceans with the Canadian Coast Guard Inshore Rescue Program, because nothing can ever be a short name. Uh, John then studied French at the University of Quebec, Chicoutimi, uh, where he was also introduced to commercial aviation. So he spent the past 27 years flying all over Canada and he's worked some pretty cool partners. So he's been, he's done some projects with National Geographic, uh, the nature of things and the NASA Mars Rover project. John then worked for three years with Ontario's air ambulance program before moving west to work with stars. He helped develop the Winnipeg stars base as provincial director in Manitoba. He is now the director for provincial operations in Northern Alberta. He continues to fly for stars as a captain and he works on supporting uh, PTSI initiatives for first responders and consults with film companies on helicopter safety and realism. And because he doesn't do enough already, he finds some time to do commercial voiceover work and uh, be a family man. So you're a busy guy. Yeah, first and foremost, a dad, then a husband. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to believe you can pack all that in in 30 years. Yeah. So, uh, well, welcome, and thanks for taking some time to come chat with us today. I know you're a busy guy, but uh, yeah, we're glad to have you here. Yeah, it's my pleasure to spend some time with you today. So if you could kind of just start from the beginning, tell us uh, a bit about yourself and how you got into flying. Sure. I, I think first and foremost, I never intended to be an aviator. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force. Uh, my, my grandparents, uh, my papa, my grandfather in the East Coast was in the Airborne back in World War II. But my, my first and initial dream was to be a five-star architect for Caribbean resorts. Again, if I could go back and talk to the 19-year-old self, I'd go back and take math and shoot at that. Um, but I went into a kinesiology degree at UNB back east in Fredericton. I think it was around my second year, I had a doctor, her name was uh, Dr. McLaughlin, who was giving this incredible anthropology forensics course and was teaching forensics. She was working with the RCMP on the side on a fairly major uh, murder uh, investigation um, that with my time in Coast Guard, we inexplicably were kind of linked. Uh, unfortunately, we were, you know, we were finding the victims of this incident uh, along the riverways in, the, in New Brunswick. And when I heard her talk about what was going to be presented in these courses, I started to become really interested in forensics. So every year I would take a couple of courses. That led me into the thought of maybe going into policing. When I was in Northern Quebec in Chicoutimi, uh, taking some conversational French, uh, was in kind of a bit of a holding pattern from a policing standpoint, as, as a lot of people were back in the early 90s. 
one of the women in my class, her husband knew an individual who was kind of flying back and forth down to Quebec, Montreal, get the opportunity to fly with him from time to time, just on a whim. And then his friend um, in Sudbury was opening up a flight school. I was kind of in a holding pattern and one thing led to another and 30 years later, here I am. So to kind of back up a bit, because um, you're saying you have family that's done service as well and specifically been in flying aircraft. So even from a young age, was there any kind of interest or, or anybody kind of pushing you in the direction of flying? My dad worked for a company that uh, from time to time would have small aircraft. Um, we did have a few family friends that were in aviation. And the aviation and, and the policing were a, a pretty big part of my you know, my upbringing. My uncle was an RCMP officer back east and, and he would go over to Cavendish in the summertime. Mm. And uh, I would get an opportunity as a young, young kid to go and spend time with my uncle Tom. And of course, as a nine or 10 year old, spending time with your uncle who's an RCMP officer in Prince Edward Island was pretty amazing. And from time to time as well, there would be opportunities to either get close to helicopters or get close to fixed wing aircraft. It, it just was never, it was never the thing that I was searching out. Mm. But once I got those experiences in Northern Quebec uh, with uh, Serge, um, yeah, it, it, it became something that was extraordinarily uh, fascinating to me. And then once I got into aviation, I had had a very serious car accident. Uh, I made some pretty poor decisions in a row uh, one evening mm -hmm. and uh, nearly killed my brother in my early 20s. My brother and I both, uh, I was driving, we were in a very serious car accident in New Brunswick and it was in that, in those moments in the ambulance and, and watching all the first responders take care of my brother and I as we made our way to the St. John Regional Hospital that I knew, I knew without a doubt that no matter what I did in a career, it, it needed to be something that made a difference. I didn't know what that was going to be at the time, but I knew that it needed to be part of, of what I would be in the future. So is that, that's where you kind of started thinking about the policing side of things? Yeah, that was the policing initiative. And then once uh, that opportunity kind of evaporated, not evaporated, but once I had a different change of mindset in my 20s, once I get into aviation, I knew early, early days, uh, both because the air ambulance program in Ontario landed and flew over our flight school in Sudbury all the time. Mm -hmm. But I just, I just knew once I spoke to the air ambulance team in Ontario at the Sudbury airport uh, over the course of a couple of months that every decision I was going to make once I got into helicopter aviation was going to drive me towards helicopter EMS. All right. Pretty cool. Well, so when you started out though, did you start with the fixed wing or you started in helicopters or can you do both? I don't know what training yeah. is involved in all that. Yeah, I'm I'm not military. So if you go through the military program, generally speaking, you'll go through fixed wing and then you remuster or get repositioned into an opportunity to either go into helicopters, jets, or um, larger transport aircraft. I took the commercial route. So I did mostly take a helicopter course in Sudbury. When I went to take my instrument rating and my night rating, I actually got my fixed wing license at that time because it was it was purely about economics. It was less expensive to do it on a on a plane than it was a helicopter. So that was my fixed wing experience. I've had a number of opportunities over the years to to fly in fixed wings, everything from uh, you know small Cessnas to jets to some corporate jets, and, and just you know support the aviation team and, and fly along with them. That's been a lot of fun. But helicopters was always the that was the route for me. Is there a big difference between flying a a plane and a helicopter? Is one harder than the other? 
think it depends on which pilot you're talking to. I think they both have their complexities for sure. Um, you know, a lot of what people experience in aviation is kind of in film and TV. Mm-hmm. I, I think both, I, I, I call them both weapons. You know, they both have a very intentional purpose for yeah. what they do. And I think that depending on distance and range and speed and altitude and weather, one can be better than the other. And they both really have their, uh, they both really have their uses. As to which one is harder, again, I don't have enough jet and fixing time, to, you know, to determine, you know, how difficult it is to land in, you know, difficult conditions. But I, I think on any given day, you have to have um, a lot of belief in yourself and you have to have some extraordinary training to fly either platform, be it rotary or fixed wing. I'm just thinking that maybe I, maybe I didn't realize this when I asked the question, maybe it was a setting up you for, for a, a startup, a rivalry, but uh, is there like a, a rivalry between 100% the airplane oh, yeah. and helicopter pilots? Yeah. 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 Sling wing, <laughs> fixed wing. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, there's always been a rivalry forever. And again, uh, I've always, I've be, always been of the mind where I personally think from a helicopter EMS standpoint, one of the, one of the most incredible opportunities that's coming in the future is vertical takeoff and lift. Mm-hmm. So if you look at, you know, uh, films like Terminator, Avatar, virtually everything you see now uh, in those films, it's, is, is kind of looking into the future. It's, it's a, a vehicle that can take off like a helicopter. So you don't need an extraordinarily long runway. You don't need the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And it can fly at altitudes and speeds like a plane. So you can get into things like de-icing. You can fly at higher altitudes. It's pressurized. And there is, uh, I think uh, many of your listeners would have seen the Osprey, which is a military vertical takeoff and lift. It's got the two big propellers. It's got the two big propellers, yep. There is a commercial version of that, which is uh, in development and and has just started to get um, approved by different aviation uh, entities across the world. I think the future particularly in a country like Canada where you have vast, vast, uh, you know, distances between hospitals, vertical takeoff and lift, you know, could be the future. One of the biggest challenges we have here in Canada is we're in icing conditions about nine months a year. So most helicopters in the world do not have de-icing systems, Mm. which means that we can be limited in uh, conditions under zero degrees in cloud. That's where the fixed wing is a fantastic weapon, right? It has heated um, edges of its wings and de-icing systems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you're ever fortunate enough to to be looking out the window when you come in and land, you will, uh, on you know, during the winter time, if you, if you look along the leading edge of the wing, you can often see ice that's built up. Mm -hmm. And one of two things will happen. It either has a a steel edge and it heats up and you'll see the ice melt away, or it has a balloon that inflates and you'll see the ice disappear. It kind of, flies off like a balloon inside like of a the balloon wing? inside on the uh. leading edge of the wing yeah. okay. so if you're ever flying in a plane in conditions you know that are below zero and it's you're in cloud have a look out the window and you'll actually see it and as they come into land um right around the time they, they hit the you know you hear the bell just before you're coming into land you'll have you'll often see them as part of their pre-land checklist they'll make sure that their wings are de-iced so the aircraft can basically sl- fly at slower speeds there are some de-iced systems in the world for helicopters, but they're extraordinarily expensive and complex. Oh. But uh, yeah, I think vertical takeoff and lift is, lift is probably the answer in the future. I was about to say, there's a, 
there's a billion dollar idea just sitting right there, de-icing for helicopters. And you just gave it away. Well, it's there. <laughs> yeah, it's there. And uh, we did uh, we did play with it a bit uh, at Stars. Um, again, it uh, it was a good system, uh, but extraordinarily difficult to maintain mm-hmm. and uh, and very expensive. And then obviously, when we're looking at operating across six bases. We need to make sure that uh, from a donor dollar standpoint that all of these systems are as effective and efficient as they possibly could be. So uh, you were doing your your licensing. Where do you kind of go from there? So Yeah, so really the big joke in, in uh, helicopter license is your first 100 hours, that's how many hours you need to get your helicopter license. It's just a license to hurt yourself badly or kill yourself. <laughs> At 100 hours, you really don't know much. And... Um, I was really fortunate to be uh, the, the school that I went to in Sudbury. If you placed at the top of your class, you were given a job uh, for the summertime, flying scenic tours at the big, the big Nickel, and then doing some work for the little FM radio station. So that was the first job that like I got. Like a traffic type Yeah, thing? like yeah. not unlike our, our news helicopter here, uh, you know, in, in Alberta. So that, that's sort of an idea. So I'd be up uh, on weekends with this little teeny tiny Enstrom helicopter and uh, half tanks of fuel and uh, just giving scenic tours at the Big Nickel and around the Sudbury. Oh. That uh, quickly turned into an opportunity to uh, fly with a, a company in Northern Ontario out of Chaplow. Again, a small community, but you, you take whatever opportunities you, know, you get. And we've talked you know, prior to the podcast, we've talked just about opening up, uh, walking through open doors. That, uh, that led to a, a couple of year career with a, helicopter boss who was dynamic and hilarious and would just give you every opportunity to fly whatever helicopter they had on whatever job. Um, and away you went. And, and that opened up countless opportunities for me to fly all over Ontario, on uh, Manitoba, Northern Ontario into the low Arctic. And then after that, uh, to Canadian helicopters here in Edmonton, worked really polar shelf project uh, up in the high, high Arctic BC interior, forest fire fighting, uh, just so many unbelievable opportunities with that group. Wow. So you've been everywhere. Yeah, I've been really fortunate. You know, I've flown back east in, uh, in Newfoundland, uh, up into the Yukon, the territories. Um, I've, I've really been incredibly fortunate to, you know, forest fire fighting took me all across, you know, Western and kind of central Canada. And then the Polar Shelf Project in the Arctic really was where I got to have so many unbelievable experiences, many of which I'd never to be able, I'd never be able to afford a civilian to even go back to these places. Nahani National Park and Olivet mm. National Park and every, everything. I mean, it, I've just been so fortunate to have such great adventures. What's the, uh, what's the furthest north that you've kind of done a project? Like, are you going right to, what is the alert? Nineveh, not to alert, like but I've been bus. just south of Greece Fjord, uh, Northern Banks Island, um, Melville Island, uh, Resolute, Resolute Bay, mm-hmm. all of that area over a number of different summers. So can you kind of talk about some of the projects and uh, in, in maybe this kind of bounces around a bit, but in the bio here, we mentioned that you've worked with National Geographic, the Nature of Things, the NASA Mars rover uh so can you kind of tell us about working with some of these companies? Sure, yeah. As part of the Polar Shelf Project, um, they're, they kind of do a, a multitude of different research and funding uh, projects in the Arctic. Those range from ice shelf projects. So back in the 90s, you know, how was the ice shelf doing? Polar bear surveys, wolf surveys, uh, wolverine, muskox surveys. Mm. Um, I was working in Resolute Bay 
and uh, and then south of Cambridge Island, uh, that was the Carrick, it's kind of the Carrick Bird Reserve. So there's an enormous swath of land that is a it's a nature reserve for migrating birds up there. So universities from around the world. I think their departments are called ornithology. And if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, but it's basically the study of birds. So these departments would come from all over the world to study a specific type of bird. So we would use the helicopters to move them all around this enormous bird sanctuary. And, uh, and we would actually uh, work with a number of these companies to band geese. So you would take the helicopter and you would hover behind birds that aren't able to fly because they're in a, a stage of molting. Their wings are changing throughout the summer. And you would drive them into a net and then they would close the net around thousands of birds. And then they would, over the course of the next couple of hours, ban them. And then they would uh, find out what sex they were and then just kind of do a quick check on them. Mm-hmm. And then we would let them all go free. That translated into other projects up in that area. I worked with a uh, division of NASA doing um, some work on the parachute deployment system for, for, the, rover. for the future rover projects. Okay. And again, that that area is very similar to what they expected the terrain to be. And if you've seen movies like The Martian, you know they're, they're using these terrains in films and they're using these terrains for testing. Sudbury, Ontario was another area where they would do a lot of terrain testing because mm. just the, the, ge- the geography of the area is very similar. So that was really neat uh, to be able to partner with them and uh, to meet those men and women who are working on that project. And then uh, National Geographic, again, it was uh, a lot of filming, um, working, doing, uh, flying along the mountaintops of all the different high peaks all the way from the Arctic down towards the Canadian Rockies into the Banff area. And there's plaques on the top of mountains mm-hmm. that tell the height and the mountain. So we would be finding these plaques and just doing a survey. And, and it just, it was endless. Um, Nature of Things, again, they did a, a bit of a, a show about the bird reserve. And it was all about the migration of the Canadian geese, but it was connected to this migration kind of overstop that they would have in the Arctic to protect themselves and how that group of birds eventually would end up in the southern United States. And that was fantastic. And most of these opportunities, like you're saying, they come up just from maybe knowing the right people at the right time and, and kind of getting into things, getting the opportunity given to you there. Yeah, you know, um, certainly from an aviation standpoint, it was it was good fortune, hard work, mm-hmm. right people, right time, un- undoubtedly. As far as the contracts go, uh, I would I would just have a history of just walking through open doors. Um, the contracts that I was on in the Arctic weren't they weren't pretty. Uh, you were sleeping in tents for weeks on end, or in a small cabin with two or three other individuals. Uh, eating food out of cans or boiling your food in the morning or sometimes, you know, having to go out and physically get your own food. Um, Yeah, so I think part of it was the amazing opportunities came along with the desire to build ours Mm -hmm. and just take whatever came through the door. And Canadian helicopters at the time uh, uh, gave me an an incredible uh, opportunity to just walk through those doors and the adventures were fantastic. Yeah, I think it's like most jobs, if you're willing to say yes, to things that come along and maybe at the time it doesn't seem like the prettiest job opportunity or, or um, I don't know, training or whatever it might be. Uh, but if you just go and do it, you know, you never know what could come of it. No, so. you, and you don't. And, and that's really been my pathway, you know, kind of once I got into helicopter EMS and then got into my work with stars early days, um, uh, Deb, one of our flight nurses was doing community outreach. So, 
I'm sure we'll get into how we have a lot of fantastic partners, but we have a training and education program where we go out and train first responders about when and how to land the helicopter. Mm -hmm. She needed a partner to talk about aviation because as a nurse, she has a tremendous amount of experience with, um, you know, first response, with uh, initial patient care, with dealing with patients, you know, in the back of the helicopter. And she had been with STARS for quite some time. But she was getting questions uh, during during her education seminars and she wanted, you know, a wingman, you know, for lack of a better term. So she asked me if I would come with her. And again, that was kind of one of the first doors outside of aviation that kind of opened up. That led to a lot of really interesting public speaking opportunities, um, understanding the politics of of speaking with individuals across, you know, the province with different mm-hmm. thoughts, values, um, ideas, questions, concerns. And that that prepares you for a lot of other things that came, you know, in life. And then again, the doors opened again in 2009, 2010. During those years, uh, Manitoba was experiencing just historical flooding. Mm-hmm. And they asked our organization if we would come and support from a helicopter EMS standpoint. And our founder, Dr. Powell, of course, is like, yeah, absolutely, we'll help. So where are you at this time? Like, because this is your transition over to STARS. Mm-hmm. So I'm in, uh, I'm in about my seventh or eighth year at STARS, and I'm here in Edmonton. Oh, yeah. okay, sorry. You were in Edmonton, then went to Manitoba mm-hmm. to help yeah. set that up. So I was in Edmonton from 02 until uh, about 2010, 2011. Okay. The first time we went uh, to Manitoba uh, was in, in the early 20s, and 09, 010, right around there. And uh, the, the first, you know, the first opportunity for our team to go in there was, was really remarkable. One of the most amazing calls I've ever gone on occurred on the first day that we were actually deployed to Manitoba. And then we were asked to come again um, back in, in 2011, 2012. Uh, when we came the second time, again, it was just so wonderful to, to support Manitoba, not only f- from you know a helicopter EMS standpoint, but my wife's family are all from there. So mm-hmm. there was just a sense of pride that, that came with being there to help. Mm-hmm. And uh, before the contract ended, they asked us to stay. And my, my founder and, uh, and CEO at the time just kind of put two and two together and really without anything on a resume, he said, look, your wife and, and her family are from Manitoba. We've kind of seen the direction that you've taken within the organization. How would you like to start up the program in Manitoba? And that was just another amazing door to walk through. So um, I want to back up just a little bit. So when you were you're doing a lot of different projects, what company were you with when you had all the uh, opportunities with Nat Geo? And, mm-hmm. and I was Canadian Helicopters out of Edmonton. It was at the old municipal airport. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So a ways ago. Yeah. Yeah. No, they um, Canadian Helicopters uh, that have been around. They were initially Okanagan Helicopters, and then they rebranded over the years. I'm, I'm sure there's probably possibly even still people flying for Canadian that used to be with Okanagan. Are they still based out of here? Uh, they have, they have a um, a division out of the Edmonton International Airport. They also have a training school down in Penticton. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and they were just one of the preeminent helicopter companies. It, it's one of the ones that many people wanted to work for in the in the day. So when my my company that I was working for in Northern Ontario ran into some financial uh, challenges, which is another whole group of stories we could talk about sometime. The uh, like showing up at the Sault Ste. Marie airport with a tail rotor and showing up to my helicopter with a chain around the tail rotor and a private jet and two guys there to repo it 
long before repoing was a thing. It was repoing a, a helicopter. Repoing a helicopter. Yeah, Bell Textron guys out of Texas. Um, I've never heard of such a thing. Well, wow. it, it was a thing long <laughs> before there was a TV show. And uh, yeah, um, despite a lot of great effort, uh, that company got into some financial challenges, and and one thing led to another, and I found myself moving out west to uh, to fly with Canadian, and they okay. opened up again tons of opportunities. So you're with Canadian, and then when when's the move over to Stars, and what does that kind of look like? Yeah, so mostly single engine work with Canadian all over Western Canada. And then in early 1999, got wind that their helicopter EMS program in Ontario, which is now called Orange, it was run by Canadian helicopters at the time, were expanding into four new bases. Hmm. So that was always kind of my goal was to get onto helicopter EMS. And that was the the routing that I was taking. So I took my instrument rating. And then got my instrument rating on helicopters and got an opportunity to go to Kenora, Ontario, which was one of the four new bases that was opened. And got myself as a first officer onto the S-76, which is a, a type of helicopter that they used in Ontario back in the day for helicopter EMS. And I was there for just a little over three and a half years. What made you kind of go the route of helicopter EMS? So, Because uh, when you say that, it sounds like it's a, like it's a very specific route when you're flying helicopters. Imagine a million jobs you could do. But what made you kind of go in that direction? Well, as I as I kind of mentioned earlier in the in the podcast, uh, when I was in my early twenties, I again made a series of of kid like mistakes mm-hmm. uh, over the course of an evening, and uh, found myself uh, doing well above the speed limit uh, on a highway in New Brunswick, and fell asleep and went off about a forty foot cliff. So, um, following that incident and and surviving that, um, I, I I said, you know, I, I always wanted to get into a career, uh, having watched the, the work and the kindness, you know, of the, of the first responders that morning, watching their professionalism, watching how they changed my life. And then it was, uh, it kind of capped with, uh, a law enforcement officer coming in when I was in the hospital and just explaining to me what had happened, um, what could happen because of the errors that I had made. And, uh, and they were extraordinarily kind. You know, they, I'll never forget the conversation they had with me. They just said, look, John, um, you know, I think you've probably had enough time to think back on the poor decisions you made last night. Fortunately, you and your brother are fine. And, uh, and I, I'm just going to give you the opportunity to know what could happen, Mm. but there's going to be no charges laid. And, um, and I just hope you take this opportunity to slow down a bit and just put some thought into what could have happened and maybe just take a little different direction. And it was, it, was, it was one of the greatest gifts that anyone's ever given me because it fundamentally changed my direction and it fundamentally changed my life. Well, it clearly stuck with you. Oh, it did. All the way up until that point where you're deciding, you know, this is the, you know, at, at some point in flying helicopters, you figure, oh, there's this path over here. But of all the things I can do with this machine, I want to go down this route. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, I, I wanted to make a difference. And, uh, you know, that that situation back in my early 20s, um, combined with watching the air ambulance helicopter land in Ontario, and then learning about, you know, what the program did. And of course, until you're in it, you don't really understand just how much of an impact it has. But um, yeah, once I was in it, uh, I knew right away that this is exactly where I needed to be in Ontario. 
And then in 2002, I get headhunted out of the blue uh, by stars out of uh, Calgary at the time. And then again, that has, uh, that has transpired into what has been just a remarkable and unbelievable career for the past 20, coming on 21 years with stars. Wow. Has it been with stars ever since it <clears throat> worked with any other companies or? No, um, with stars primarily, mm -hmm. uh, we have, I have had the opportunity to do contract work, uh, primarily in the summer times with London air services, which is London drugs, aviation parent company out of Vancouver. We did transition into a helicopter called the Augusta Westland 139 for a short time in Edmonton and Calgary. It was a larger aircraft. We talked a little bit about de-icing. And while we were waiting for our aircraft to get delivered, they opened up an opportunity for a few of the pilots to come and do vacation coverage for them. And that was remarkable. It was the first time in my life I'd ever flown without a helmet, without flight boots, and in a basically dress pants and a shirt. It was fantastic. And uh, they operate aircraft between the Vancouver airport and areas all around Vancouver, primarily up to a, uh, a resort called the Sonora Resort up in the islands northwest of Vancouver. And again, uh, it was a door that opened and I just walked right through it. And uh, it was a, a remarkable experience and, and a great opportunity to get uh, additional time on an aircraft that would eventually be our helicopter EMS aircraft for a couple of years here in Edmonton. Okay. So when you join STARS, uh, what's kind of, I guess you come in and do you have to do any further qualifications? And can you walk us through like what the training is like uh, to be a, a pilot with STARS? Sure. Yeah. Um, that is one remarkable thing about STARS. So nobody comes in new. Everybody comes in with experience. And uh, as we all have arrogance in life, we think we're coming in with some experience. And when I came to STARS, I recognized that I had a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. And again, being an adult learner is, is, is a lot of fun. When, you, when I came into STARS, they were just initially starting their night vision goggle program. Mm. So STARS was the first civilian organization in Canada um, to start using night vision goggles. Now, this is in a post-9-11 world where NVGs, I'll call them from now on, are um, they're controlled good. And if you've ever looked through an actual pair of authentic military-grade NVGs, you will understand that that's not something that they want the enemy to have. So they're very controlled. And at the time, post-9-11, you couldn't even get them unless you were military in Canada. At the time, the G7, G8 summit was occurring down in Kananaskis, and the United States government uh, had some concerns with whether or not their helicopters were too big to be landing at the hospitals in Calgary, which was the case. And they're also a little bit concerned with their familiarity with the Canadian healthcare system. So they approached STARS, and they said, look, in the highly unlikely event of an incident with then-President Bush, would your team be willing to come into Kananaskis and pick, pick him up and bring him back to the city? Mm. So we said, again, our, our, uh, our CEO, and uh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. However, there's a problem. We can't fly in at night. To which the United States government went, will help us understand that. So we explained to them that, you know, in order to fly in at night, you had to have night vision goggles. We were flying into Banff and Canmore um, using specialized routes and, and certain altitudes. And GPS, but that was very early days. And when I listened to the stories of the pilots flying into those two areas at nighttime, again, I'm I'm kind of awestruck. And when we explained this situation to the government, um, they said, "Well, we think that we can fix that." And within 
the course of about a half a year, STARS was uh, given four sets of night vision goggles. Mm. We had a grant uh, through one of our donors to get the aircraft certified for night vision flight. We partnered with Transport Canada, and we've been using NVGs and night vision goggles since 2002, ever since, on every mission with every base at nighttime wow. across all six bases in Western Canada. Wow. That's a pretty cool partnership, too. <laughs> it really was. Yeah, just an amazing partnership. And um, yeah, so when you come into STARS, for sure you have to have your instrument rating. So you have to be, you know, comfortable in cloud, fly approaches just like, you know, our partners do with WestJet Air Canada and others. You have to have nighttime. And then uh, you have to have a certain amount of, um, of twin engine time in order to kind of, for them to kind of look at your resume seriously. I was fortunate that I had all those things with my experience. And then once you get there, um, the aviation uh, part, as well as the medical part, have a, a tremendous amount of extra training. I've never in my career had the type of training that I get at STARS. Um, we have an annual recurrency, number of tests on the new aircraft that we're flying, the Airbus H145. We go down to Texas initially for a month of simulation and classroom training. And then we go back every six months to kind of take care of the we kind of do a four-hour focus session on the emergencies that are really going to put you in a high-risk situation. And then again, on the one-year cycle, you go back for a week and you do your, your Transport Canada pilot uh, proficiency check or what's commonly referred to as a PPC. What would be some of the, the higher-risk type of things you would train for? So I think the common ones are engine failures. Okay. Um, the really high risk ones are tail rotor loss, uh, particularly tail rotor loss in the hover. Uh, getting into a situation like a dust ball, an ash ball, a snowball. Mm -hmm. So where you completely lose your references coming out of a scene call and you basically need to put the aircraft in an attitude that allows you to get up and out of the snowball without being able to see anything using instruments. And then once you're up and above the snowball at a couple hundred feet, you rotate and fly away. So this is stuff like as the rotor's going, it's blowing everything up and you can't you can't see anything. You don't know what direction you're really looking. For sure, yeah. yeah. So if any of your listeners have seen any of the YouTube videos, it's it's a common occurrence. It happens, um, generally it happens in, in three different situations. In dust, so around a construction site in the desert, snow. Uh, there was an incident in Utah where two military helicopters got into a snowball effect um, doing an exercise and crashed into each other mm -hmm. in the snowball. That was just a year or two ago. And then uh, the last one, so we've talked about dust, we've talked about snow, and then for forest fire, forest fire situations, uh, there is times where forest fires, uh, forest fire fighters will get injured and will go in. And it's not something you expect, but when you go into a, a situation where you have a lot of ash on mm -hmm. the ground, ash will do exactly what snow does and it creates a snowball. You lose all your visibility. So we train for things like that. We also train for Losing engines at high altitude, being able to maneuver down into the valleys to get out of the mountains on one engine, and uh, and then inadvertent uh, flight into into clouds. So you're flying along, you're on your way into Jasper. The weather is forecast to be okay, but as you come around a valley doing you know 230 kilometers an hour, all of a sudden the weather just yeah. goes from three miles to one to two to quarter to nothing. Hmm. And just how to maneuver the aircraft, you know, safely and appropriately to get away from the sides of the rocks and maneuver yourself in a valley and turn around and go back in the direction that you knew the weather was good and go back home. Do, do helicopters experience, um, I, the term escapes me out, but when you're in the airplane, turbulence. Mm -hmm. So do you get turbulence and does it feel the same as being in a, I just know from like being in a passenger jet, is it the same as that? 
No, it's, I'd say it's probably a bit more violent. Um, <laughs> helicopters are, are quite a bit smaller, particularly our half bases. our listeners are like, I'm never going in a helicopter. Yeah, then. well, again, <laughs> I, I think that, um, you know, most helicopter companies are, are they're not going to go out in severe turbulence, but yeah. our bases in Grand Prix and Calgary do experience, you know, severe turbulence trying to get into the rocks frequently. Again, I think the human factor will turn back before the aircraft factor would. So the aircraft will take more than you can as a human. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we, take a look at the weather multiple times during the day. It's something we check before we go on every mission. And uh, if they're reporting severe turbulence, uh, we generally don't go. Okay. um, Probably some of the craziest helicopter stories I've ever heard is when I listen to any podcasts uh, on people that have flown in like Vietnam and they're just getting into all kinds of stuff. And, you know, maybe they got one engine or tail rotors gone or something. Uh, But on a, on a, We'll say an equivalency basis, like where would a STARS pilot be in terms of training? Are they up there? Like they're probably some of the best trained helicopter pilots, maybe even in the world, or is it kind of like, you know, your experience, but the military is still kind of the, the best pilots? Or? Well, I, I think best is an interesting word. I think that the STARS training program for sure, from my experience is uh, the best that I've ever experienced. A lot of our pilots at STARS, the vast majority of them are ex-military. So they've already had a tremendous amount of experience with what is a a very robust training process through the Canadian military. The remainder of the pilots are ex-commercial. And again, these commercial companies across Canada have varying degrees of of very good training. I think when when we come to STARS, a good chunk of our training team are ex-military combined with great commercial trainers. And they're looking worldwide to determine what we need to be uh, what we need to be proficient at. There's a difference between proficiency, a checkbox, and currency. Mm-hmm. And we really work on proficiency. So it's not one and done. We don't go away, you know, for that one week a year. We have quarterly, monthly requirements. Uh, we have 90-day and 60-day requirements. And again, it's not just, you know, taking a helicopter and going for a rip around the Edmonton International Airport, we go down to some pretty complex confined areas down in the mill area, down in these depressed railway railways and railway track areas to the east of Millet. And thanks to all the community members out there who allow us to fly and train out there at night. We do a lot of instrument flying, a lot of instrument training. And again, we go back to the simulator in now Texas, Arlington, Texas. And, uh, and run the teams through kind of the worst of the worst. Mm-hmm. The simulator allows you, as, as many of your listeners have had different types of simulators for different types of jobs, it allows you to be in an artificial environment that is as real as you can make it, push yourself to the absolute limits, work as a team, and trap those errors. And that's what we're really focusing on when we do our training is identifying an error, identifying an, is- an issue, trapping it, stopping it, fixing it, and then making the right decision using checklists. And, and that's what our, jo- our job is, is, really, um, is really focused on up front is it's monitoring the helicopter and making sure that we are well ahead of the game as the environment and things change because that is the one big difference, I think, between fixed wing and rotary Many of the locations that, at least in the in the corporate and the commercial world, that that fixed wing aircraft land are are fairly controlled. So it's an airport environment. 
Can't say the same thing for a lot of the work that's done up in the Arctic with the twin otters and so on and so mm. forth. It's a very, very challenging uh, landing and certainly overseas in, in mountainous regions. But generally speaking in Canada, it's a pretty controlled um, environment. From a rotary standpoint, particularly helicopter EMS, it's very uncontrolled. So one night we can be landing on a highway, then we can be landing in the middle of the woods, and then we can be up at six, 7,000 feet in the mountains. Jeez. So it, it, it ranges and, and the training that we get prepares us for all of those situations and and many more. And again, they just want to they want to just fill our tool belt with as many tools as they possibly can in the hopes that you never have to use them. And yeah. policing is the same, right? Yeah. So when you get into stars, do you start with a, a rank or do you have follow a rank structure there? Yeah, generally speaking, you will come into stars as either a first officer or a co-captain. I came in as a co-captain, which means that you still need 100 hours of mission profile time before you can become a captain. And then once you have 100 hours of missions and, and different types of experience, different types of missions under your belt in using, you know, stars, policies, procedures, and understanding how the organization works and what the requirements are as a captain, then you go through a captain's board, which uh, basically is a, an interview process, a fairly lengthy one, followed by a couple of rides. And if those all go well, you'll get upgraded to captain. Okay. And then is that like the operational side of things that you, you top out as a captain? Or are there like a bunch of ranks? So for the, for the most part, most all the pilots, um, certainly in Edmonton, are all captains. And then if you, you know, have training background, you can be a training captain. So that would mm -hmm. be someone that would be responsible for training. And then within the training department, there is a chief pilot. And then we have uh, an assistant chief pilot. And that's kind of the ranks within, you know, the, the captain group themselves. Okay. Uh, so can you kind of walk us through some of your experiences as being a member of STARS? Wow. Yeah. So where do I begin? Um, I, I probably have 1,800 missions. So 1,800 individual patient touches. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and everyone has been, every one of them has been unbelievably unique. There are a number of course that, that always stand out. Um, are uh, you, well, maybe I'll start with a bit of like, so when you're flying, are you, the paramedic ever at all? Do, this, do people switch roles or it's the pilots are the pilots, the medics are the medics? That's a great question. Um, so we're very much a team, but we're a team of four. So, and that's in the helicopter. So on board every STARS mission, we have two pilots mm -hmm. and that can be a combination of captain, 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 first officer. And then in the back, which is where the, the magic really happens is we have a critical care nurse. And because of the training that they get and the support that they get from the transport physicians, we have a designation critical care paramedic. Mm. So we have a critical care team in the back of the helicopter. They're supported outside of the helicopter by a STARS transport physician that is on board the helicopter about 5% of the time, but always available by cell phone or sat phone or radio. And then long before we even get in the helicopter, we're, we're supported on the front end by the engineering team that makes sure that that aircraft is ready to go and that we come home safely. So that's mm -hmm. kind of the mission profile. But there's always two captains on board for every call okay. or two pilots on call for, for every call. So is there any kind of specific mission that really stands out in your mind as like either a, a very difficult flying experience or something that got like real hairy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. Um, we live in, you know, we live in Western Canada. There are, there are spaces and places that we operate every day that have little to no weather reporting. The weather is 
graphically forecasted throughout kind of all of Western Alberta. So there's a lot of space out there where uh, things can sneak up on you. We have some great technology as far as weather um, on the iPads that we bring with us and we check weather before we go on every mission. But yeah, I've certainly had uh, calls out into the mountains. So towards, you know, Jasper, Nordig, um, Abraham Lake area where the weather is not forecast and you're getting yourself, you know, quietly out towards the mountains and then the weather turns on forecast. Mm. Again, we have the training to deal with it, but even with the training, when you're turning around in, you know, instrument conditions in the mountains, getting yourself turned around in a valley and turning back towards Edmonton, and then the, the mission isn't necessarily over. Your role as one of the captains is to say, okay, that didn't work quite as well as we wanted it to. What is the next stop? So can we stop at the Shunda, you know, forestry base and wait for EMS to come to us? Do we go back to Rocky Mountain House? Do we just abort the mission altogether? It's just a constant fluid of living in the gray yeah. with safety being paramount. Um, you know, we've had, uh, we've had unexpected icing that you pick up. I had a couple experiences in Ontario early in my career where, again, you didn't necessarily have the experience to know that you probably shouldn't have been there. Uh, we had a windshield fire, an electrical fire on board the helicopter when I was in instrument conditions back early in my days when I was flying in Ontario. And uh, we couldn't get out of cloud. The ceiling was too low below us and we couldn't get the fire out. So it was um, extraordinarily difficult to be inside an aircraft that smelt like burning paint, mm -hmm. trying to be on instruments, keeping everybody calm with a patient on board in the back. And, um, and again, it, it, it had a good result. It had a good end. We, we just systematically and thoughtfully figured out how we were going to get to ground. And eventually pulled the circuit breakers, which shut off the window, which shut off the window heat, which essentially, you know, ended up putting out the fire. I had two patients wake up uh, one night, uh, both of which had been extraordinarily unkind to each other prior to us putting them asleep and transporting them to hospital. And uh, their medications wore off in the dead of night and they started fighting in the back of the helicopter. Wow. That was extraordinarily uncomfortable. That was before I was flying with night vision goggles. Mm. And um, yeah, I've had a lot of uh, a lot of close calls, um, near misses, we call them. Prior to even getting into twin engine helicopters, I actually had three separate um, mechanical uh, full-on engine failures in helicopters, resulting in auto rotations to the ground. Two of which while I was while I was at flight school. So what's the auto rotation? So auto rotation. Um, so again, Hollywood's an interesting thing. When a helicopter finds itself in a situation where it has no power, mm -hmm. it can still land safely. And that's one of the emergency profiles that we train. So you glide out of the air at a high descent. You, you're you know, between two and a half to 3,000 feet per minute down. But if you have a space the size of a, size of a baseball field, um, you can land. Mm. So you use the inertia that's in the main rotor system and through physics, it continues to spin that rotor system. You can turn the aircraft left, right. Um, you can extend your glide or you can shorten your glide. But essentially, you have a space that is a couple hundred feet by a couple hundred feet that you need to land the helicopter in. Mm -hmm. and, and again, you train for that in the simulator. You train for that in flight school. And uh, yeah, I find myself uh, on a couple of occasions uh, have a major mechanical issue. And, uh, and have to rotate even before I started flying twin engine helicopters, which was one of the, uh, 
the reasons why I, I quickly needed to move both psychologically <laughs> and, uh, and physically into a twin engine helicopter. I had kind of had it with single engine helicopters and it's extraordinarily rare to have mm-hmm. um, an engine failure. I have pilots uh, that I fly with now, a couple in particular that have twice the amount of hours that I have in the tens and tens of thousands. They've never had an engine failure. Really? I just found myself in that situation and was fortunate to have the training and the luck uh, for mm-hmm. it to work out well. Wow. Is there anywhere that uh, the stars won't go? Is there like an absolute no-go area or are they just is it just kind of weather dependent whether they'll go somewhere or not? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's it always comes down to weather and fuel. Mm. So just about uh, a month ago, our Grand Prairie base went almost 2,000 kilometers you know, total flight up to Watson Lake, Yukon Territory. Mm. Now, there is a lot of questions that were asked before they went up there. But uh, the United States Coast Guard was not available out of uh, Anchorage and out of the Alaskan area. There was, and it was at nighttime. So there's only a limited amount of helicopters that can fly at night on night vision goggles. And through some discussions with our SARS transport position and the entities for emergency up in the territories, it was determined that the aircraft at Grand Prairie was the most appropriate vehicle, you know, weapon. Yeah. To, uh, to bring that critical care team in the back and away they went and they ended up refueling multiple times en route, picking up this individual who was quite seriously injured and then dropping them off at the Fort Nelson Hospital and then returning back to Grand Prairie. Wow. Yeah, so where trip. can we go? <laughs> Again, we'll go, we'll go wherever we need to go. Um, but what we're really trying to do is deliver that, that critical care team to those appropriate patients. And there are times when the helicopter can't go that we're now starting to transition into, well, perhaps it can go by fixed wings. We're partnering with Alberta Health Services to send our team and that level of care by fixed wing. Mm -hmm. We're also doing quite a bit of ground transfers. So there are some communities that don't have helipads. There's uh, some nights that the weather or some days that the weather just does not... uh, does not accommodate flight. So again, it's about getting that critical care team to the right patient in the right modality, whatever it is, agnostic platform. And uh, now our teams are starting to go by ground as well. Well, so kind of maybe two questions that overlap, but um, how big is the program? How many helicopters do you have available? And is it a 24-hour program? But also with that, how do you decide what you're going to dispatch to? Because I imagine lots of people are probably looking for an air ambulance. So how do you decide where you go or who you're going to help, I guess? Yeah, so all great questions. So I'll kind of go from 40,000 feet down Mm -hmm. to the minutia. So we have six bases located across Western Canada that are all 24, 365. We have day shift and night shift. And those bases are located in Winnipeg, Regina, Saskatoon, Edmonton, Calgary, and Grand Prairie. Calgary being the first one that started up in 1985. Um, on, on site each day, we have a full complement of engineering support, two pilots, medic, and a nurse. There's a transport physician on call at all times. And we have the support of the STARS Emergency Link Center that takes care of the coordination and the logistics of everything. And again, there are anywhere between two to four um, uh, critical call takers down at the STARS Emergency Link Center in Calgary. So that's the high level view. We have a dispatch time of in and around, I just generally say under 15 minutes. So from the time the call comes in, we'll check the weather. Once we determine that the weather is favorable and safe enough for us to fly, at that point in time, we'll accept the mission. And then the mission profile kind of begins at that point and out the door we go and we're on our way to the call. What type of calls do we go on? 
So anyone who's familiar with the 911 kind of dispatching system, a call will come into 911 and in the first second, no one really knows what it is. Mm-hmm. And then the call, the dispatchers will start to ask a series of questions from a series of cards. Those cards, depending on what responses they get, will escalate up in severity. And at a certain point in time, a certain type of call, if it's serious enough, will engage the SARS program. Mm, okay. So the 911 system will connect with our SARS emergency link center. We get what they call tagged with the call. And at that point in time, our emergency link center starts to collect some data as to what's going on. And those calls would be what most you know of your listeners would imagine. Shootings, strokes, heart attacks, serious motor vehicle accidents, drownings, electrocutions, falls from a great height, um, any major injury to the core, a loss of a limb, and mm-hmm. anything you can imagine. So those are the types of calls that would come in as to what we call a scene call. Again, we can refuel, we can go, we can go by ground, we can partner with Alberta Health Services and go by fixed wing, but it's, it's only a certain type of call, generally speaking, that we would get launched on um, because of the mechanism of injury. Mm-hmm. The other type of calls that we go on, and it's a breakdown of about 50%, the other types of calls on are interfacility calls or what we call IFTs. An interfacility call would be a community that lies outside of Edmonton, Calgary, Grand Prairie, that has a patient present themselves to the hospital. The hospital does all the great work that they do in that community to the highest level that they can, but they determine that that patient needs to come to a higher level of care, either a trauma center or uh, an ICU, mm-hmm. or in the case of you know little kids or little babies, one of the hospitals here in the city that takes care of little pediatrics and little neonates, little little kids. And uh, at that point in time, if it's determined that STARS is the best mode of transport given the level of care that's needed, then we'll get dispatched for what we call an interfacility call or an IFT. How does it happen? Our STARS transport physician and our air medical crew will consult with a doctor on the other end at that rural hospital. They'll have a back and forth about the situation at hand, um, what the condition of the patient is. Oftentimes, our STARS transport physician will give advice. Mm-hmm. And then if it's determined that that patient does in fact need to come to the city, then our team will go out and they start administering critical care. As soon as they arrive, they continue that care all the way back to the hospital. And then we hand that patient over to uh, the capable hands of whatever center we're landing um, at whatever base we are, be that Winnipeg, Grand Prairie, Edmonton, or Calgary or other. So uh, one of the things that I, I know we've done a few times uh, being with the police and we've done uh, it's like an ambulance has to go from we just do an escort for them but they have to go from the royal alec to the u of a and they need us to block intersections they can't stop i guess whoever they're transporting once they get them off whatever machines or things are hooked up to got x amount of time we got to get to the other place get them uh, hooked up and cared for so is that kind of like something stars might get called for those type of events? Yeah, pretty rare. However, I've been on a number of them. Um, so different hospitals in the Edmonton, we'll just speak specifically to Edmonton. Different hospitals in the region have specific teams at that hospital that deal with very specific situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, a AAA with a heart stroke, a major, you know, some sort of major injury. And, um, 
you know, surgical suites are open at certain amounts of time. The ones that I've been list, uh, the ones that I've been dispatched to, for instance, have been sent up to St. Albert because of traffic around five o'clock at night, where a patient uh, has had um, a massive incident occur with their heart, and the surgical team is at another center in Edmonton. They know that the amount of time that they have is very limited. They know that we can give blood, and that's, that's one of the things that we have on board the helicopter. And they know that the speed in which we can get from the Sturgeon Hospital in St. Albert to, let's say, the U of A or the Grace Hospital is very quick. So we'll be sent for those kind of things. The other thing that, and it's generally revolves around traffic. Um, we've had incidents where uh, an individual will present themselves, let's say, to the Grey Nuns Hospital, and they need to get to the U of A. And for whatever reason, the traffic is very bad. Yeah. And we just happen to be in the area. Then we'll land at the gray at the uh, at the gray nuns, and we'll transport to the U of A trauma center. So it's pretty rare, though. Do it sounds like the the helicopter would have more equipment on it than just a regular ambulance. Then, yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah, the back of the helicopter is essentially a, essentially a flying intensive care unit. Yeah. So it's it's the talent in the back. So you've got your critical care team, your nurse paramedic, supported by the stars transport position. But in the back of that helicopter, we have monitors, uh, ventilators, we have blood, we have ultrasound. We have a mini uh, lab where we can get lab results on your blood within two minutes. In the Pl helicopter? In the helicopter. Wow. Yep. Uh, we uh, have four pumps that are on the wall that again, you know, the medical team could speak to, but it is, uh, they're able to administer a myriad of different drugs that do a myriad of different biological, you know, things uh, to your body. And again, it is essentially a flying intensive care unit. Um, the blood administration is fantastic. We're starting a new uh, a new program in Saskatchewan, which will be coming to Alberta fairly soon for for serious trauma uh, requiring infusions into your body. And again, we're looking all around the world for that next skill set that our team in the back can learn and in the front, but in the back uh, can learn to make a difference. And uh, you know, our founders' thought process was. One patient lost is one patient too many. Mm. So we have the vision to look around the world and determine what other helicopter EMS units are doing and what they're exploring and bring those things to Canada so we can administer critical care the moment that our teams land on the side of a highway, the edge of a lake, the edge of a riverbank, or in a rural community that needs a very, very sick patient attended to immediately we support that community by bringing that intensive care unit directly to their door. And that work begins as soon as our team in the back uh, lays hands on that patient. Okay. And one thing you kind of mentioned that I was uh, looking to get to was what are, what are some of the examples around the world uh, that are similar to STARS? And do you work with any of these yeah, people? Yeah. So, you know, there's a, there's a number right across Canada. There's uh, programs in British Columbia, obviously we're kind of Western Canada. There's the Orange program in Ontario. There's a new program that started up in Quebec. And then there's a program out in Halifax. We look down to the States for some of our partners. Uh, there's Riga uh, helicopters across the seas. Uh, we have London HEMS, which is London HEMS. Um, there are programs in Australia, New Zealand uh, that we look to as well. And they're doing, again, they're doing some incredible things. Um, there is a program in London that has, and again, if Dom, one of our nurses was listening, he'd tell me the name, but there is a, uh, 
It's basically a, a way that they can block blood flow off below your abdomen to keep all the blood in the core of your body by putting a, uh, a balloon inside your femoral arteries and blocking, blocking off blood going to your legs because your core mm-hmm. needs the body. They do this in the field. Wow. We're using ultrasound right now with stars and, and it's quite a remarkable little tool. It's uh, the small wand that you would see you know, in an ultrasound lab, but it's attached to an iPad. So we're able to take that information and they're able to look at your heart, look at your kidneys, look in your abdomen to see if there's any bleeding. They're able to do, um, when they take a needle and put it into your veins, they're actually able to look at your veins and your arteries and make sure that that needle's going into the right, right vein to be able to give you the drugs that they need. They're able, they're able to look basically within your body in real time, take those pictures, do a screenshot or a video screenshot, send that back to our STARS transport position, and in the future, we'll be able to send it to the hospitals. So in real time, everybody will know what's going on with all the instrumentation and the helicopter back to a, a receiving facility. So you you land and they're straight in and already, you know, they're 90% up to date on what has happened to you, what's going on. And- exactly, yeah. That's- and with the coordination of the STARS Emergency Link Center and the technology and the Wi-Fi capability in the new helicopters that we are traveling in and real-time exchange of information, there's been many situations where the transport docs and the emergency and, and uh, supporting cast back at the hospitals have said, you know what? This patient doesn't need to go to the eMERGE. They mm-hmm. need to go direct to the OR. Mm-hmm. So instead of flo- stopping on floor one, our team stops on floor three and we go direct into the OR suite. The OR team has been completely briefed on what we're bringing through the door. And again, it's just collaborating and coordinating information with every piece of technology we have mm-hmm. to make sure that we get the best patient outcomes. And that's the future. Who do you find, uh, like all this technology, who's developing most of it? Cause I know for, you know, when you look at police, uh, a lot of our stuff comes from the military. And then I know, you know, at least back when there was the world wars uh, and Vietnam and stuff, uh, a lot of medical stuff came out of that. So is that still kind of the, the, is that still the same today? A lot comes from military experience? For sure in the front. Um, most of the technology we have, both from the night vision goggles and the technology on board the aircraft, most of these aircraft companies, Airbus being the one we're using right now, they're developing military hardware. So that military hardware in time comes to the commercial world. Mm -hmm. In the back, we're looking around the world for companies that are operating in the same type of environments that we are with equipment that is compatible to the healthcare system they're in, but Mm -hmm. that works in our world. So we need to have monitors and heart monitors and equipment that is small, light, tough. It can withstand vibrations and it can also withstand temperature swings of minus 40 to plus 40. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and again, so we can reach out to our partners in Switzerland and say, hey, are you having any luck with X piece of equipment? And they're like, yeah, actually, we were on a scene call up at 9,000 feet in the mountains about three and a half weeks ago. It was minus 15 for about an hour and it worked flawlessly. So we have in the field um, sharing of data and information between our partners all across the world. And that's what we use to kind of pick the equipment that will be best suited for the back of the helicopter. Yeah. And, you know, even same in policing, we get a piece of equipment and usually the manufacturer, whoever, they want the feedback. And then you say, well, this worked, this didn't. Can you change this, make it better for our needs? And uh, yeah. 
Yeah, very much so. And, and we're experiencing that right now with uh, with Airbus. So we have, you know, a new helicopter that's come to our organization. We just purchased two, uh, 10 new Airbus H145s, of which the 10th one just arrived this week. And we're constantly in a feedback loop with them because they want their product to be the very best. And they also recognize our organizational reputation around the world mm-hmm. as being a preeminent leader in the delivery of critical care, um, pre-hospital care around the world. So our the weight you know, that we cast on a project or on a piece of equipment, uh, they want to make their product even better. Yeah. And we know that the collaboration and support and sharing that information is only ultimately going to affect our, the safety of our crew on board as well as the, uh, the end state of the patients we serve. So uh, one of the things I wanted to kind of get into was we were talking about like your missions that you've been on, some of your experiences. So what moved you into the role you're in now where you're kind of running things in the northern part of Alberta? Uh, So how did you get to this position? And then what does it kind of look like? What does this job do? Yeah, so even that's changed in the last couple of months. So I've actually taken on the entire provincial operations role since about July. Um, So initially it was just supporting Edmonton and Grand Prairie. And now it's supporting all three of our bases in Alberta, along with the support into Eastern British Columbia. And how did I get there? On paper, it's a tricky, it's a tricky trick. Um, But as I mentioned earlier, um, my, my current CEO, Andrea, and my previous CEO and founder, Dr. Powell, um, have looked to me over the years to support change and growth and develop meant in an undeveloped area. So it started off with Manitoba. I had had a couple of management positions within the aviation group prior to that. I had supported our aviation team primarily in the expansion into Saskatchewan and just supported them as as a bit of a subject matter expert, both based on experience and time at STARS as to how do you transition our organization and the policies, procedures partially but more the culture. How do you how do you transition that mm-hmm. into a province that has never had it before? And that started with Saskatchewan and then translated over into Manitoba. And then in Manitoba, it was a remarkable experience. Um, I was so proud to be there and, and uh, I love Manitoba. As, as mentioned earlier, my wife's family is from there. But we started off with a motorhome, a barbecue, an oxygen supply, a partnership with the hospital to get the equipment we needed and a helicopter. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And that needed to transition into finding bricks and mortar, um, all the things that go into building relationships with companies that uh, bring you supplies. We bought a couple of ATCO trailers, and then we added that outside of a hangar, and that developed into the base and developed into what is essentially multiple missions per day in Manitoba. We're actually flying our critical care teams on board fixed wing as well and doing a lot of ground transport. And that became the evolution of what we call Star 7 in Manitoba. I had the opportunity to come back to Alberta and support in a director role and that moved into a provincial director role. And and now it's uh, a combination of being on the flight line one one, uh, week a month and then the other three weeks are focused on supporting our foundation team with donor recognition, donor development, meeting donors and generating funds for the organization. Mm -hmm. And the other major part of my role is the general operations of... uh, making sure that each mission goes well, both from an engineering, aviation, and aeromedical standpoint. And that's that's essentially the role is making sure that all the operational requirements across the province are there, such that every mission is successful and safe. 
So, uh, yeah, and we had a bit of a conversation beforehand, uh, and you were talking about um, some of the donors and the, the people that have helped out with the program. So uh, I know on the website it talks a bit about the funding, but could you explain it for some of the listeners? Maybe some people don't want to go read things. <laughs> yeah, no problem at all. It is really a remarkable, it's a remarkable setup in the sense that if you have made any donation to our organization at any point in time, you're part of every mission. That's, that's the 40,000 foot view. STARS is partially funded by the government of Alberta, here specifically in Alberta. And the rest of the donations, um, the better part of you know, 70 to 75% of them are from uh, the general public and companies supporting our organization. So if you have any NASCAR or Formula One fans out there, they're sponsorships. So when you look at the helicopter, you'll see if you look closely that there are numerous stickers on that helicopter. Our government support is there. So we have the governments of Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan, which all support our organization. And then you'll see other um, companies and community initiatives that have raised at least $250,000 all the way up to multiple millions of dollars. And the recognition of that incredible donation to the patients we serve is uh, seen on the helicopter and represented by a sticker. So you'll see the 250 to half million dollar stickers on the tail and then moving up, uh, up the tail boom and then up to the upper cowling would be, the upper cowling would be equivalent to the front nose of an F1. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or the, you know, the actual driver's suit. Yeah. So that's how it kind of works. And uh, we partner with uh, communities, individuals, companies, private donors, um, right across Western Canada to keep the uh, program free. So there's never a cost to any of the patients that we fly. And um, we're able to deliver that critical care and continue all of the work and the cost that it takes to keep that training where it needs to be at a world-class, world-leading pre-hospital level. Um, absolutely with the support of our donors. And so when you look at the helicopter next time, you'll see all of the contributors mm -hmm. And there's thousands of others behind the scenes yeah. that make, you know, this incredible organization work. Well, and uh, part of the conversation we were having, just speaking on like making things work was uh, how many people behind the scenes it takes to make, you know, you have the pilot and you see the helicopter and then the, the medical team that comes out of the helicopter and does stuff. So you really only see the four people at the front of it and the, the aircraft, but there's a, ton of people behind the scenes that make them functional make the helicopter functional and then get all the donations and all this other stuff so it's quite a i don't want to say uh, quite a project to keep going yeah absolutely and you know we were sharing just you know within your service there are so many people that are involved long before you even get into your vehicle mm -hmm. to go and do the great work that you do and often those people don't get recognized um, our organization is many hundred strong. And I, I have the analogy that I, I've shared with many of my colleagues of a, of a really beautifully crafted watch. So when you look at the face of a watch, you see the hands. And the hands on the clock, are it's very obvious what they do. And that is the helicopter. So people have a very clear understanding of what that is. But what they've looked right through is the glass. Mm -hmm. And the glass that protects the hands on that watch, that's our engineering team. We wouldn't be protected without it. Um, and they make sure that we leave and get home every day from a maintenance standpoint. Underneath the face of that watch is all of the mechanisms. So you've got big cogs, little cogs, all 
spinning simultaneously together in unison to make sure that the hands of the clock, the helicopter itself, can be up and ready and mission ready for the next patient. Mm -hmm. And then that is everybody within the stars, from the front desk at reception all the way up to my CEO. Underneath driving all that is the battery. And that's our foundation team fundraising and partnering with all the donors across Canada to make sure that the STARS program is there for the next person that we need to go out and serve. Well, Everybody sees that watch face yeah. up in the sky, but there's just so many, and the same with law enforcement, there's just so many cogs and wheels underneath that just make everything seamlessly work. It's really quite remarkable. Well, and one of the uh, things I was looking at the website just before we started too, uh, you kind of have like a testimonial section in there, like people saying their experience um, and, and then just why they're thankful that STARS is... Uh, I guess exists and then was able to help them. It kind of got me thinking, I was like, I don't know why the police services don't do this, especially with just the amount of bad media we get from time to time. Uh, but having some real positive outcomes out there and, and putting those out. But I thought that was really cool on the website. I thought that was a good idea. Yeah. So. We call them VIPs or very important patients. And, mm -hmm. and really they're the reason that we, we do everything that we do. Um, law enforcement, it is very is very similar. You know, every single time we go out and touch a patient's life, that interaction is captured forever. And with our VIPs, um, of which I've had, you know, well over a thousand, they in some cases have become part of my life, and our fabric interweaves. Um, I picked up this young young boy. I, I won't say his name, but he knows who he is if he's listening to this. So, you know, in his teens, uh, he and his best friend were involved in a very serious car accident, and I remember supporting our air medical crew, um, working on him as we went down the uh, the hospital elevator when we got to the rooftop, and they had to get some more drugs, and they needed me to do an intervention that I was trained to do and support, and I did that. And I remember thinking when that elevator door closed and he went into the trauma bay that I would likely never see that kid again. And many months later, he walked in for breakfast and uh, wanted to thank his crew. That transitioned into becoming friends with him, meeting his family, and uh, ultimately uh, meeting his uh, beautiful fiance and now wife and now their kids. And uh, right around uh, mid-July, we try and get together every couple of years to celebrate kind of that day. Mm -hmm. And um We've remained friends ever since, and I've watched him grow from a young boy all the way up to a, a dad with beautiful kids and and a, and a beautiful wife and a fantastic family. And long after I'm gone, we will be part of his fabric and history. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the police is no different. And it's it's sad that the recognition for all of the first responders out there um, who are part of any journey, you know, with anyone where the outcome becomes even slightly better mm -hmm. isn't always recognized. And, you know, I, I recognize very early in my career with STARS um, that a lot of those first responders don't get the recognition that they deserve because, again, you know, the helicopter is easy to splash, you know, into, into the, uh, you know, into the lines on a paper. But I recognize all the work that takes on every single call I go on, mm -hmm. you know, law enforcement, fire, EMS, parks, sheriffs, bystanders, dispatch. And then that's just on the front end. You add all the people that are involved from the security officers that meet us on the rooftop to the myriad of help through occupational, physio, speech, all the trauma. Yeah, It's incredible how many people are involved 
on both sides, you know, in your line of profession and mine, of every call we do. It's just, it's hard to even fathom, to be honest with you. Well, and you were mentioning uh, setting things up for the visit for the Pope. Yeah. Fascinating. Do you want to give us a bit on that? Sure. Talk a yeah. bit about that. So, I so again, mean to keep you here forever. No, that's fine. I'll, I'll just keep asking we'll, questions. We'll edit, we'll edit whatever we need to. <laughs> and again, it's, it's my pleasure to be here with you this morning, Nathan. Um, this was just a fascinating story, I thought, with the amount of uh, uh, planning that went in. And then you were talking just about the partnerships, but also the coordination with uh, the Pope's team and just... Uh, translating things and and having blood work ready and and where are you flying them to very so, much so yeah so it's, it's hard to even know where to begin I, I guess the most important thing was it was an honor to be asked to support uh, a visit in the hopes that that visit would positively change the situation that we find ourselves in as a nation with our indigenous mm. communities that's that's first and foremost in that's my comment that's my feeling and um, I've had the blessing of working with so many different Indigenous communities in the Arctic and in Canada. Uh, my wife works closely with the Enoch Cree Nation uh, to the west of, of Edmonton with their children. And it was just an honor to be asked for that reason. Mm -hmm. From an operational standpoint, STARS was asked to be the critical care provider in the highly unlikely event that something happened to um, the Pope or one of the Pope's support network from the Vatican. And we were an extraordinarily small piece of an enormous puzzle. So throughout the course of 55 to 60 days, and generally speaking, these types of initiatives take years to plan, but that's just was not the way that this one worked out. Um, I sat in on meetings, three or four meetings a week with our partners with the RCMP, Edmonton Police, Health Canada, Alberta Health Services. Um, we had a lot of mental health support, Indigenous affairs, the communities themselves, and then the Vatican, and then Ottawa. So these meetings would occur in different sections, you know, throughout the, mm -hmm. the planning for the for the uh, events. And primarily, we were involved with the communities in Muskogee and Lacsanan. And it was remarkable to see the different lenses that all of these amazing people bring to the table. We have. Uh, you know, Graham and his team getting ready for Commonwealth and the thousands of people and how they do all the logistics behind the scenes, both from a policing and a healthcare and a mental health standpoint. And then our role was basically in the highly unlikely event that something were to happen during the periods where the Pope was outside of Edmonton city limits, essentially the Anthony Hende and beyond, our team would be there as a support network for the advanced care um, EMS or emergency medical system ambulance team that was in the motorcade. And we were asking questions like, are we able to see the Pope's papal records? And of course, they need to maintain the utmost of privacy. So we would be asking about, well, can we get blood type? And well, how come? Well, we carry blood on board. We want to just make sure that in the highly unlikely event that something happens, we have the right blood type we would ask questions about medical records. And of course, they can't share those with us, but we wanted to make sure that in fact, that they were translated into English. Mm -hmm. One of the comments back was, well, you know, the, the Pope's private physician will be with them. And again, this is the brilliance of law enforcement and, and others looking at it with a lens. Well, in the event of something extraordinarily untoward, they may not survive an attack. Mm -hmm. So we need to have somebody that can either translate that or they need to be translated into English. And just the different lens that 
Edmonton Police Service, the RCMP, everybody brought to the yeah. table was really quite remarkable. We talked uh, during one conversation about what was the nearest hospital in the event that something occurred during the motorcade. And one of the responses, both from our team and the team at Alberta Health Services was, your nearest hospital is the amazing advanced care practitioners that are in the ambulance as a couple vehicles behind you. That's mm -hmm. your first go. Your next go is walk down the highway and our team will land to support, you know, the professionals on board those ambulances and collectively we'll, we'll work as a team. And then, you know, we may do some interaction with, you know, the injuries at that time and then we'll go to mm -hmm. the nearest hospital. Um, and then, of course, that conversation led to, okay, so you're going to go directly to the ER, possibly. Depends on what happens. We might go directly to the OR or we might go directly to the cath lab for heart. They want to know exactly where he is at every single second. Of course they do. Wherever you take him. It's yep. like, no, no, the whole team's going with him. Very much so. And then it's a partnership with, you know, who is STARS going to carry and then who is the RCMP going to carry and then Air 2, which is the Edmonton Police Service helicopter doing overwatch to make sure that everybody's safe and, and nothing else is going to occur. And during the motorcade, we were flying back behind the motorcade with Air 2 doing primary overwatch cover, communicating back and forth with them, communicating with the RCMP helicopter on site, just to make sure that we're all in the same page. We're also talking with the motorcade in a highly unlikely event that anything happened, mm -hmm. um, you know, just to make sure. And then behind the scenes, again, you have all the support of the hospitals who would be ready for us in the event that anything, anything happened during any of the events. And then Transport Canada giving us airspace clearance to come in, the back and forth with that, plus the average mission that may go on during the day that might occur in those restricted airspaces. So yeah. all this is going on behind the scenes. It was a fascinating, fascinating 55 days of back and forth dialogue and, and just absolutely one of the highlights of my professional career in the last couple of years. Well, and just to think, so that's just, just you planning you know, that part and it sounds like a nightmare to plan that much stuff and then you'd have some police person planning all Very of that much. same amount of stuff from the police side and you got yep. the fire and you got and whoever ours was, else ours <laughs> when you listen to our partners with alberta health services health mm -hmm. canada rcmp ours was a drop in the pond we yeah. were just such a small piece and and i recognized that and i just came to have such admiration for all of the planning that goes on um people just in a rock concert occurs in edmonton the amount of planning that goes on to make sure that everything is ready in the event of, absolutely remarkable. And on the RCMP and Edmonton Police side, we were uh, able to come in and have some conversations and be part of some very private conversations. And just so grateful to be, um, to be able to see the lens uh, on which health and law enforcement put on these types of events in the hopes that, again, it can perhaps in the future change our nation for the better. Yeah. I think it's a amazing program and it's likely to only expand. I don't see why they wouldn't, uh, the provinces wouldn't continue to sign contracts. I, uh, I don't imagine there's any other people that can really do what you do. It's a pretty niche market. It, it is a niche market. There's no doubt that, uh, you know, we have some, some incredible health uh, EMS programs across the country. And again, our organization is, is always there to open new doors mm -hmm. um, and walk through them. We were looking to the future of, of supporting communities across Western Canada that uh, things like satellites and Starlink and, you know, the SpaceX mm -hmm. program are bringing to the table. 
in the years to come, there'll be communities that will be able to have um, interaction and telecommunications abilities that they've never had before. Yeah. And while the helicopter may not necessarily be there, they'll be able to talk to our STARS transport physicians and get real-time information to support mm -hmm. patients who are in those communities. So that virtual care part, I think, is a big part of our future. And certainly, we recognize that the helicopter is a great tool, but what is the next tool to be able to bring that world-leading pre-hospital care, critical care to those patients when, the, when, we, when they're needed? Mm -hmm. And uh, those are the questions that we're asking ourselves, and we're continuing to see what those windows and doors are right across the world. So uh, just before we do go, uh, I wanted to just ask, you do these consults with the film companies, as we mentioned in the bio, and then you have some commercial voiceover work. What, can you tell me about any of this stuff? Sure. What, do you, yeah, what it, are it's, these? It's just, again, it's just fun. Um, so our organization was asked by a director here in Edmonton. His name is Raul Bat. Uh, he was working on a production uh, called Pipe Nation. And, and in that production, there is a scene where um, an incident occurs and he asked if, if our organization would participate in, in, in assisting with that scene and, uh, and that, uh, that show, have a look at it. It's, it's gone on to do great things at the awards and, uh, and we wish it all the best. One of the, one of the caveats was, was that I was just so tired of hearing the wrong helicopter sound and seeing terrible editing and just wanting to get his final product mm -hmm. to a level where it would pass a fair amount of scrutiny because that's just the world we live in right now, be it policing, mm -hmm. aviation, movies. Uh, and he was gracious enough uh, to, uh, to let me into that group. And uh, I got to bring my daughter, Christiana, with me, who's a real film buff and, and has always been interested in storyboarding and film and editing and so on. So we get to partner a little bit and, and, uh, and work together. And that was an amazing experience. Um, we were able to just support them to make the scene that occurred as realistic and as real life as it would be. And then on the voiceover side of things, I grew up as a kid with um, Paul Harvey at my grandparents' camps, um, you know, on AM radio coming out of uh, Maine, um, Stuart McLean, uh, Vinyl Cafe. Th those are the things I listened to as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to be able to tell stories. So with a lot of public speaking, somebody asked me one night whether or not I had ever done any voiceover work. And of course, the answer was no. And then they said, you know what, you should really look into it. So I just took, you know, a couple of months and looked all around Canada as to who might be a wonderful, you know, group to go to. And I found uh, this individual in Toronto who had individuals teaching out of Calgary and uh, just kind of waded in very slowly, found out what authentic meant. And that was, that was the big thing in voiceover work is people, everybody wants to be James Earl Jones. Mm. But the truth of the matter is, is that's very few people. Yeah. Uh, Sam Elliott's another one who used to do the Dodge Ram commercials. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what you see more and more is, is uh, a little bit more of a move to more authenticity and natural. Mm -hmm. And that's, that was a big breaking point for me. I don't do a lot of it. I've done some uh, education for uh, Alberta Health Services. I've done a few things for EPS. Again, my name's not there, but my voice is attached to some of their education. Okay. Done a lot of stuff for STARS. Again, it's mm -hmm. a cost-saving initiative for our organization, but they have given me so many opportunities to voice over education programs, um, any of the things that we've done for donation. 
I've done a lot of the safety videos for our new H145, where you're standing in front of a green screen, just sharing information with your team. Of course, you get a lot of ribbing for it because it's, it's around <laughs> yeah. forever. Uh, but it's been fantastic. And any opportunity that comes to voiceover, something where I can be my authentic self, uh, is uh, I just walk through those doors. They don't come around all that often. And again, I don't have a lot of time to pursue them, but it's been fantastic. Our sergeant always gets put in front of the cameras and uh, we make a lot of memes about him. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and you know what? <laughs> when, you, when you get stuck in front of the media, your team, will, uh, your team will forever remember what you did well and what you didn't do well. Yes. I had a fantastic opportunity to anchor the six o'clock news with CTV many years ago. And uh, that, was, that was an experience of a lifetime where you know the anchor at the time, Daryl McIntyre, came in. And he spoke for five minutes and then he handed over to Aaron S. Feld and I. And for the next hour, I looked at a teleprompter and just hoped that I could make it through the next 55 minutes. And it was, it was an absolutely fantastic experience. Yeah, that, that would be quite the experience. I, wouldn't, I don't know if I'd be up for that because now you have cameras on you. That mm-hmm. Just being in front of the mics is a different experience. But when people can see you, you're very vulnerable. And yeah, everybody's watching for the mistakes. Yeah, for sure. And as long as they didn't have a heart monitor on me, I was fine. Yeah, I, I know just even on here, I mispronounce things and I'm, I sometimes catch it right away and I just go, ah, oh, I'm such an idiot. Why did I say that? Well, so. we're hard. We're hard as adult <laughs> learners. We're hard on ourselves, right? Yeah. And uh, I, just, I just went on a, an enormously long hike with two very experienced hikers. It was almost 100 kilometers up in the Jam, uh, Jasper and Banff um, corridor. Mm-hmm. And to be an adult learner in your 50s and uh, have the theme be, don't do that. It's mm-hmm. tough. But the truth is, is that I'm forever telling my kids that they need to walk through these doors and, and have these experiences. Yep. Why am I any different? Yep. So everything that comes my way, I try and just go, oh, okay, yeah. sure, give yeah. it a go. Lifelong learning. Very, Very important. much so. Yeah. Keep so. us young, I think. Um, well, that kind of brings us to the end of our time. Is there anything you think we missed? Anything uh, I didn't get to or like to... No, you know what? I just, what I think my, my closing uh, kind of volley would be I'm just so grateful and appreciative to all of the men and women that play any role in the development of my kids here in the city, Mm -hmm. uh, the protection of my city, and professionally with with my work with STARS, um, making sure that it's safe for us to land and all the work that goes on long before we ever get there and long after we drop those patients off. It's recognized. I recognize it. And I just want to thank everybody who's been any part of any of those missions that I've completed since 2002. Yeah, great. On, uh, I'll put up a link to the STARS website and uh, the you guys have run the lottery every mm-hmm. year. Yeah, lottery will be coming up uh, early part of 2023. And again, it, uh, it raises a significant amount of capital for our, uh, our operations and all those proceeds remain within the STARS organization. Yeah. It's our largest fundraiser of the year. So that's one of the ones I always look forward to. So... Um, I'll put a link up for that and um, yeah, no, I appreciate the time and we had some amazing stories and uh, I think people are going to get some really good education on the program uh, through this. So it's great. Appreciate yeah. the opportunity to connect with you here this morning, Nathan. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.